Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet podcast. Thank you for tuning in for another instalment of my musings. Whether it's your first visit or you are a regular listener, you are most welcome. Thank you also for the warm reception you gave my first foray into essay films. It was very enjoyable to try my hand at a different form of storytelling, but this month I'm back with a regular audio podcast. To anyone who is new to the podcast, I am Meg and I'm a European Englishwoman who lived outside the UK for more than half my life, but ultimately settled in London. I'm a maker, writer and generally curious soul. I am fascinated by natural and minimally processed materials, the science behind materials, and also the long human instinct to manipulate them, make objects, and tell stories. On a semi-regular basis, I drop by to share some experiences, inspiration, adventures, and observations from my own making life. I talk about what I'm working on, of course, but mostly I'm fascinated by the how and why of the making process, from material and environmental considerations of what and how we make, to some of the psychological and social reasons and implications of why we make. The best way to keep up with me between episodes is to follow me on Instagram at Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that's with an underscore between each word. Show notes of everything I mention in the podcast are available on my blog, mrsmcuriositycabinet.com. And for my films and video footage, you can find me on YouTube under Mrs. M's Curiosity Cabinet. How is everybody keeping? Here in southern Britain, we've been in the grip of a couple of heat waves. I know that when we Brits complain about hot weather, people around the world just roll their eyes at us classifying low to mid 30s degrees centigrade, or around low to mid 90s in Fahrenheit, let alone 38 to 40 degrees centigrade, or low hundreds, as a heat wave. The reality, however, is that those temperatures are high for here, and when the mercury hits 38 or 40 degrees, alarmingly high. And not just because they are uncomfortable and for many with underlying health issues even dangerous, but mostly because of their wider implications for local infrastructure, water levels, and most significantly, the local flora and fauna. As a gardener and urban food grower, I'm obviously seeing the impact of sustained heat on my little collection of crops, with salads bolting, the leaves of my young currant bushes frying, and even perennials that normally thrive on neglect like rosemary, thyme and hyssop struggling. I know that with a little reprieve in terms of heat and some careful tending, a lot of these plants will probably bounce back. But my micro-growing efforts make me aware of the struggles of farmers around the country and much of Europe, which has seen similar weather in recent months. And the environmentalist in me is particularly concerned at how quiet the garden has been since the July heatwave. My little patio garden normally provides a gentle symphony of natural sounds to punctuate the din of the vehicles on the nearby A2, one of the main arteries from Kent into London. Garden birds provide the mid-range and high notes, while bees and hoverflies offer a gentle drone of bass tones. However, on the days when the mercury hit 38 degrees and above, the garden was eerily quiet, despite me putting bowls of water out for the local wildlife. And the normal soundscape has barely recovered since. In this context, I thought I would devote the whole of this episode to the kind of making efforts that are increasingly part of my maker's life, and ones that we podcasters rarely give the attention they deserve. 
So what do I have in store for you today? Some might call it an episode on making do and mending, or even maintenance, but I prefer to think of it as an episode on tending my past makes, my present self, and my funny little urban cottage garden. So I hope you have a favourite drink and some kind of project to hand, and let's begin. In recent months I've been refitting some garments. My regular swimming routine has changed my shape somewhat, especially on my hips. As someone whose size has fluctuated all my life, I've always been wary of changing clothes, or rather wary of taking them in, as there would always be the spectre of having to unpick them again when I ballooned. However, skirts falling off my waist to halfway down my hips was making me feel rather frumpy, so in recent months I've been working my way through some modifications. Apart from the size and weight-related gremlins that caused me to procrastinate, there are of course other psychological issues at play that caused me to dither for too long. For a lot of us sewers and knitters, it's very easy to get excited about a new project. There's the excitement of unfolding a crisp new pattern, the frisson of delight from uncreased fabric or a new skein of wool, the allure and anticipation of a new object to add to our me-made wardrobes. Just like sugar, the novelty cues in the making process give us a dopamine rush. No matter how practical, down-to-earth or rational we may think we are, it's hard to escape certain chemical reactions that happen in the brain. By contrast, unpicking something that's familiar and working with crinkled, fraying, possibly even faded material to make something usable again doesn't have quite the same sparkly effect on the brain and emotions. Or rather, it doesn't unless we can tap into other factors that pique our brain and tantalise our emotions. So I thought that while I was tackling some remaking, I would not just observe what I might learn from the process in terms of practical dressmaking insights, but also from my own brain-body stimulation satisfaction perspective. Obviously, this was not a scientific experiment with the scanner attached to my brain, but rather a case of slowly registering and trying to understand what I was experiencing with minimal judgment. The first step in my refitting exercise was to work out where to begin. Whenever I'm faced with procrastination or a difficult task, my instinct is to go for the easy win, i.e. what will deliver the maximum benefit for the least amount of time, energy, brain power, emotional upheaval or whatever. In my case, I mostly wear skirts and dresses rather than trousers, so bringing some skirts back into service made the most sense for me. And as they are mostly A-line skirts with minimal complexity, this certainly felt like the best place to start. So I pulled out four skirts and worked out a plan of attack. With their zip set into the centre back seam, the basic refit would be pretty simple. Unpick the side seams at the waistband, the top of the skirt and the hem. Unpick the stitching attaching the waistband to the skirt. Take everything in and then re-stitch. On this basis, I decided that my brown and charcoal linen skirt would be the easiest to tackle first, as it was the simplest of all four. Also, as we were moving into warm weather season, having a summer skirt was a bit of a priority. Then I surveyed the L3. My brown corduroy skirt, which serves me from autumn through to spring, is one of my favourites, so would be a useful project to tackle next. 
However, although it's a very basic A-line skirt, it has two not so much complications but rather features that make the refit more involved. It is lined and it has pockets. Not inseam or patched pockets, but rather pockets that involved a curved cutaway in the front skirt pattern piece. Taking in a lining is no harder than taking in the actual skirt, but taking in a side seam with such pockets does involve a practical and aesthetic assessment. I needed to remove a total of 4 inches off the hips. That would mean taking each side seam in by an inch, which would significantly shrink the size of the pocket opening. Not only will it throw out the visual proportions of the skirt, I'd likely struggle to get my hand in the pockets, rendering them useless. Now, I'm no ardent fan of pockets, so that isn't necessarily a deal breaker, but it did make me put the garment on the back burner for a while for more consideration, and reach for an easier refit project instead. I decided that as well as dealing with the linen skirt, I would deal with my interwar librarian skirt as I like to call it. This is a below-the-knee version that I made without pockets in a thick but loosely woven wool. The changes involved in refitting this one would in essence be the same as those that I was using on the linen skirt, except that I would also need to unpick the hand-sewn overcasting that I'd used to finish the side seams. Unpicking hand-filled stitches is relatively low impact, and redoing them wouldn't add much work to the refitting job. I also resolved to tackle the shorter woolen skirt too, because as with my interwar librarian skirt, I dispensed with the pockets, partly due to my not-fussed attitude to pockets, but mostly for fabric efficiency reasons. This skirt was lined, but as I said earlier, taking in a skirt lining is not that tricky. Once I decided on which refits to tackle first, I had to get the scissors out, and started to unpick the necessary seams. This was another moment for potential procrastination, partly because it feels like an act of destruction, although in this case constructive destruction, but partly because for me at least it elicits the same apprehension I feel when I revisit the first draft of a piece of writing. Writers often speak of the fear of the blank page, i.e. how hard it is to get going, which I know only too well. What is less discussed though is the fear of the first redraft. Going back and discovering the gibberish, the logical flaws, cobbled together thoughts and the gra grammatical and spelling clangers in the first draft. Well, I experienced a similar feeling before I'm picking a garment. A sense of dread of what imperfections I might find, what less than straight stitch lines and what lumpy seams. Fortunately, though, there is a bigger time lag involved in refitting a me-made garment compared to revisiting a first draft a time lag that allowed me consciously to reframe my mental perspective. Rather than being on my default, you stupid woman, what were you thinking setting, I went into the unpicking with the attitude of this being an opportunity to visit a past version of me the sewer. And unpicking two skirts in the same sitting only emphasised this. Rather than just seeing imperfections, I was able to see the progression in my dressmaking and how my understanding of stitches, fabric and construction had evolved over the years. I also got to see how with each garment I was taking more informed decisions about facing materials, the allowance with which I trimmed my seams and my stitch sizes. 
One of the other issues that causes me to procrastinate about making changes to clothes I've sewn is knowing that it's highly unlikely I will achieve the same precision alignment that I aimed for the first time round. It is incredibly difficult to achieve the same precision and alignment on a garment that may have stretched or warped somewhat due to extensive wear as well as the act of unpicking and re-stitching. Here too I try to approach the issue with a different mindset. If I can accept that I'm weather-worn around the edges due to the passage of time, why should I have a different expectation of 2D natural material that has been shaped into a 3D form and has been subjected to various stresses and strains? Just as I view my white hair and wrinkles as a testament to the seasons I've lived, why should I not view those minor misalignments of scenes as evidence of the longevity of the garment? That's not to say that I set out to do a sloppy repair job. Rather, it's a recognition that as with gardening or pottery or any other craft involving natural materials, I need to avoid the hubris of presuming that my hands and my choices are the only influences on the material. Thinking of the excitement that newly purchased materials elicit, handling familiar fabric up close again during the repair offers a fresh perspective that is quite pleasing. Proximity to the weave, pattern, or even just the colour complexity reminds me just how much I love the fabric I originally chose and reinforces why the shades or texture resonates so much with me, both then and now. After completing the repairs of two of my skirts and trying them on, I was surprised at how excited I was to have them back in my wardrobe again. Pressing a garment that has been unworn for some time back into service thanks to a little unpicking, restitching and hand finishing is highly satisfying, but also surprisingly joyous. I don't mean joyous in the exuberant way that a new garment might be. To use a food analogy, it's not the tantalising delight of a beautifully presented pavlova dessert at the end of a meal, with a crispy yet chewy meringue, intense jewel-like raspberries and fluffy cream tantalising the senses. Instead, to me at least, it feels more like a rich syrupy espresso and a square of intense bitter black chocolate, rounding off a most enjoyable meal in an understated but utterly pleasing way. This year there has been relatively little knitting due to a pesky repetitive strain injury in my elbow after stupidly using my laptop on my lap. In recent months I've picked up the needles again but as I really have to ration my knitting I decided to use the knitting time to address some repairs. With each year that passes, each garment I knit and each round of repairs that presents itself, I'm learning more about how I wear garments and what designs and finishes I may favour in the future from a longevity perspective. Just as I will think twice about including pockets in my skirts in the future, I'm also rethinking my favourite cast-off method for cuffs. As someone who has quite a lot of hands-on activities, from cooking to gardening, pottery and various other mucky crafts, I subject the cuffs of my cardigans and sweaters to a lot of wear and tear, and their edges tend to fail long before I wear holes in the elbows. In recent years, I've generally favoured the tubular cast-on or off method at the waist and cuffs of my knits. I like this technique as it's pretty stretchy but also looks very tidy, with the rib stitch emerging almost out of nowhere. 
For non-knitters, if you look at shop-bought knitted garments, it's likely to have a tubular ribbed cast-on. However, since switching to the tubular cast-on and off methods, I've noticed that I'm having to repair cuffs with greater regularity than before. With this in mind, I've decided that from here on in, I will probably use the I-cord cast-off techniques for cuffs on long sleeves. I already use this method extensively on my neck and button bands, as this technique has a clean finish, a degree of stretch, but mostly adds a modicum of reinforcement to those edges. So for top-down sleeves, I will definitely be swapping to that technique. For any non-knitters, the I-cord cast-off method looks like there is this minutely thin tube edging running horizontally along the edge of the fabric. Knitwear repairs allows us to inspect at close quarter how a garment is wearing, not just in terms of the construction, but also the yarn. And for me as a podcaster, it offers an excellent opportunity to talk about this. We podcasters tend to be very good at waxing lyrical about new wool and yarn blends, and we may even talk about how they work up when we're knitting them. But how often do we discuss how well they are wearing? How a yarn holds stitch definition or shape after months of friction? How well it washes or stands up to regular wear and tear? So I thought I would start to rectify this by regularly sharing how the yarns in my knits are faring over time. Obviously certain wools and blends come and go and there is little point in me talking in specific terms about something that is no longer available. But most of the wools in my wardrobe are either recurring ones or they are blends produced by mills who use similar fibres and spinning methods. And even if I just limit myself to those two categories I could probably fill several months worth of podcasts by now. So let's start with the wool that I'm currently wearing. I know a lot of people consign their woolens to the back of the cupboard during summer, but on an average UK summer's day I will still wear a cardigan, mostly in the morning and evening when I feel a chill, but also when I pop into the supermarket or travel by train because refrigeration and air conditioning mean I'm actually cold. That said, on an average summer's day in my part of London, when the mercury hovers around 24 to 27 degrees centigrade or 75 to 80 Fahrenheit, there is in my book still a place for wool. I tend to eulogise wool for its heating properties, but it also has excellent cooling functions if you pick the right preparation and use a lighter weight yarn. A lofty Shetland or Lopi wool will do nothing to keep me cool in the summer, but I will happily wear some wools during these months, like the two cardigans I knit in Kettle Yarn Company's Nordium Fingering. At 400 meters per 100 grams, this is resolutely a four-ply yarn, which for me tends to knit up at a tension of 25 stitches to 36 rows over stocking stitch on a 3.5mm needle, which is a US number 4 but which I would imagine would also work out well on larger needles for a loose attention. This wool is 100% non-superwashed blue-faced luster, so a luster fibre with long staple, in fact between 3-6 to six inches according to the Fleece and Fibre source book by Robson and Icarius. As such, it's a natural candidate for a worsted preparation and spinning, which means the long fibres are combed to lay nicely parallel. This results in a much smoother yarn than the lofty woolen sponchette and jumper weight walls I love so much. So think a finer, more disciplined texture rather than lots of internal pockets that can trap air. 
Between its spinning preparation and a fibre diameter of around 24 to 28 microns, Northern Fingering produces a fabric that is more than soft enough for me to wear over a sleeveless top or dress. And compared to other 100% non-superwash blue-faced Leicester walls, I actually reckon this wall sits at the lower end of that micron count. As a point of reference, merino wool has quite a range of fibre diameter, but typically sits around the 20 to 22 micron mark, and human hair, for comparison, has a micron count of 70. In my experience, soft walls can have a tendency to pill, and some of the BFLs I've used in the past look rather shabby after some time. Having worn my two Northium cardigans for two and three and a half years respectively, I'm happy to report that whilst there is a little pilling, it's by no means excessive. On my older Northium cardigan, the Belmont cardigan by Gudrun Johnston, there is some felting at the armpits, which is pretty typical for me on garments knit with negative ease. This felting does mean the edge of the lace pattern at the underarm side has started to get a little lost, but the pilling is still quite manageable, and nothing I can't pick off. My second cardigan is showing no signs of felting, maybe because I knit this self-designed cardigan with less ease and the pilling is negligible. The only caveat I have about this wool is more about how I would use it in the future, and that is not due to anything being wrong with the wool, but rather me recognising the fibre's characteristics better. The long staple length of BFL and the worsted spinning means this wool has a lot of drape, adding to the luxurious feel of the yarn. These two cardigans I knit in one piece from bottom up with set-in sleeves which I picked up round the armholes and worked from the top down. The structure around the arm side is good as picking up stitches around the armhole created a structured ridge. However, as the back and two fronts of the body were knit all in one, the lower half of the body loses a bit of structure with wear. So in future, I will either use this wool for light tops or tunic-style jumpers, both knit in the round. If, however, I were to knit another cardigan, I would knit the back and front panels separately and seam them together so that the side seam adds a touch more structure. This is by no means a criticism of this wool and its durability. It's just an insight based on my experiential rather than theoretical understanding of the characteristics of the material and knitting construction. Given how well this wool wears and produces garments that appear delicate and luxurious, I would have no qualms about using it again. And as Linda of Kettle Young Company recently added a smoky topaz brown colour to this range, which she is calling loam, I'm seriously considering using it for a short sleeve top for use on its own in warmer months and layering in winter. As well as me refitting skirts and repairing knitwear, I wanted to share another repair of a very different kind that I'm arguably even more excited about, and it's something I think we should discuss more openly. As much as I am a big advocate of us discovering our own agency and reskinning ourselves, this third repair actually involved outsourcing the mending. During the pandemic years, when walking was pretty much the only permitted outdoor activity and by and far the most sensible mode of short distance transport for non-drivers, I seriously wore through my younger pair of Birkenstock sandals by the end of lockdown. 
My older pair had been so badly worn by the time Covid rolled around that they had long since been demoted to studio shoes, i.e. sandals I wore in the studio so as not to walk clay dust into the house. Earlier this year though, I had seen a gardener on Instagram parade her well-worn-in sandals that had just come back from repair, so I researched the company she'd mentioned to see if I could resurrect either pair of my Birkenstocks. The boot repair company will carry out repairs to all manner of shoes and boots, including things like motorcycle, riding and even military and emergency services footwear. For Birkenstock sandals, its services include replacing the rubber sole, the cork footbed, buckles or even the thong posts. I inspected my sandals to work out which pair I would send off for repairs, A at all and B first, to assess the company's services as well as spread the cost. The older pair looked pretty shabby, but on closer inspection, I had only worn down the black rubber, mainly on the outer heels. My younger pair looked much more presentable on the surface. When I turned them over though, it was clear I had not only worn through the rubber on the outer heel, but due to the thong design with the strap running across the instep rather than the toes, I would actually started to wear away the leather strap edge that is sandwiched between the rubber sole and the cork footbed. I also noticed that the cork was starting to split at the large toe joint, so I had a decision to make. My preference would have been to repair my thong sandals, but this would have been a bigger repair, and given that 15-20% to of the leather strap had been worn away, I wondered would the repaired sandals have enough integrity to last another 4 or 5 years. If it were just a case of replacing the rubber sole, I'd probably have gone for it, but I wondered how well the leather would survive being prized off both the rubber and the cork. And as this repair would be considerably more costly, I decided I would proceed with the older pair first and inquire about this more involved repair if I was happy with the service. When I went to order the repair online, I'll admit I did do a double take at the cost. The repair itself cost just shy of £30, but with postage to the company and back, I was looking at near £45 for the repair. If I'd gone for the rubber and cork combination for the second pair, it would have been nearer £50 plus postage costs. Those sums are hardly a trivial amount of money, and I'll be honest, I did wince at first. And then I sat myself down and thought about it some more. When I was growing up, shoe repairs were the norm. Shoes were expensive and they would regularly be repaired three, four, five times, basically until the upper leather wore out, or when we were very young, until we grew out of the shoes. For many years, I would take my shoes to the cobblers until manufacturers started designing repairs out of their shoes. In all those years, I can't remember shoe repairs ever being cheap, but as the investment cost of the shoes was higher, the repair cost represented a smaller percentage of the original outlay. In recent decades though, with prices being driven down, the cost of repair, if indeed the shoes can be repaired, represents a larger percentage of the original or replacement cost. And then it begs the question, is it worth repairing it? But maybe we need to collectively reframe that thinking. A cocktail of events around the globe means inflation is on the rise. Even before the latest spike, in the UK we have certainly seen prices go up a lot in the past two years. And the reality is, everything is more expensive, both goods and services. So when I compared the price of the repair against what it would cost me to currently replace the sandals, the cost amounted to half the price of the nearest possible replacement. 
In this context, the price of having them repaired looked much more palatable. There are, of course, other factors that make the case for repair. I don't know what it's like for others, but it takes me a while to wear in shoes and sandals, and there's usually a fair amount of blisters and swearing along the way. Back in the days when shoe repairs were the norm, I don't think I appreciated the delight of not having to go through repeated rounds of wearing in blisters. Now, though, the thought of avoiding them fills me with such joy and relief that repairing comfortable footwear feels like a form of self-care, a way of tending my long-suffering feet. Finally, from an environmental perspective, with resource shortages, be it raw materials, energy or water resources, becoming both more common and more obviously so to more people, maybe as a society, rather than wonder whether we can afford to repair, we should be wondering whether we can actually afford not to mend, not to breathe new life into that which can be repaired. So I placed the order for the repair, boxed up the sandals and sent them off. The boot repair company turned the order around amazingly quickly. I won't pretend that the sandals look as good as new. Even a good polish will not disguise years of scuff marks, but they certainly looked as if they had many more years in them. I popped them onto my feet almost immediately, and objectively my delight must have seemed ridiculously disproportionate to the reality. But it felt like getting an old friend back, and the sandals have barely left my feet since. This outsourced repair project was a useful reminder to me of three things. First, the smallest seemingly trivial things can really enhance our everyday. Secondly, the process of assessing worn out footwear and repair possibilities also reinforced that old adage of a stitch in time saves nine. In future, I will definitely keep a better eye on my sandals and source the repair before the uppers are affected. And thirdly, on a macro level, if we have any hope of turning the tide on the environmental fronts, we will not only need to repair more, but the employment profile of countries will need to change, with a shift of some jobs away from making new stuff to repairing existing stuff. And paying a fair price for those services is essential if those working in the repair sectors are going to earn a living wage. My final two maintenance projects have taken me outside. The first sees me in my funny urban cottage vegetable garden, where I welcomed a new responsibility to the household. As an urban food grower working in a patio garden consisting mostly of raised beds and pots, I grow quite intensively. By that I mean that every square foot of soil is maximised by raising seedlings in pots on my windowsills and planting them out as soon as something else is harvested or cut back. The only way to make such demands of the soil is to give something back. Investing in quality compost at the start, mulching the soil regularly with homemade compost, feeding the soil and plants with naturally derived feeds, etc. In a small garden, it's hard to make enough compost to mulch every bed, so there is an endless cycle of feeding our two compost heaps, turning them, sieving compost and mulching. The Bokashi recycling system we use for kitchen waste helps the process as the pre-digestion speeds up the composting, but it still takes time and only covers part of our soil maintenance and plant feeding needs. This year, though, I decided to add another string to our bow by finally investing in a worm bin. 
I know a lot of people cringe at the thought of insects, and especially wriggly ones at that, but as somebody who has made compost for years, I have a very healthy respect for worms, and consider compost worms one of nature's miracles. So around Easter, our three-tier worm farm arrived from Resi Worm, along with 250 grams, or about half a pound, of compost worms. Me being me, I'd done extensive research on the process beforehand, and from everything I had read, I had concluded that worm compost is like black gold, a turbocharge for the soil, that the process is a very effective and relatively fast way to cycle nutrients from food waste back into the soil, that if you get it right, your band of worms expands significantly to make the system even more efficient, but also that you need a little patience and practice to get the worms settled in. After being disturbed by shipping through the post, worms need to get accustomed to their new setting and bed down in damp cardboard shreddings and a little familiar soil before they start to feed and produce. So they need feeding, but not overly so, until they have recovered from the shock. On average, this settling in process takes about six weeks. In the first week after they moved in, I kept checking around the wormery carefully. Apparently, distressed worms can make a bid for freedom, and in patio gardens this means they invariably dry out on the stones or are prey to local bird life. I was pretty anxious that first week, but I'm glad to say there are no obvious escapees. I know I'm an earnest type, but I was surprised at how much I fretted about the worms in the first few weeks. I had a real sense of responsibility for these creatures that would be helping us. I mean, I'm the woman who apologised to every worm I disturbed when reconfiguring the raised beds, so is it any wonder that I felt responsible for these new arrivals? For the first two months, you would have thought I was feeding a pampered pooch, weighing out the carbon, i.e. shredded toilet rolls and egg cartons, and chopping up a cocktail of some of our food waste so they had a good mix, and taking great care not to disturb them too much. But there are no fruit flies around the wormery, and it doesn't smell, so we seem to be on the right track with them. I was concerned during the heat wave, so made sure to spritz the cardboard every other day to keep them sufficiently moist. I fear some may have succumbed due to the heat, but there still seems to be plenty of activity. I now feed the worms twice a week. Most of our limited waste still goes into the Bakashi system, but the wormery is a great way to help dispose of vegetable peelings as well as the weekly egg carton and tea leaves from my copious pots of tea. The tea leaves are too moist to go into the Bokashi system, but their moisture, combined with cardboard, actually helps keep the worm's environment on point. When I checked the tier below the active one for SKPs recently, I noticed a deliciously dark, crumb-like earth in the lower tray the first evidence of worm castings, i.e. the worm's excrements. I know that some people find references to such bodily processes unsavoury, but just as compost doesn't smell, neither do worm castings. They just look and feel clean and full of life. Worm castings are no replacement for compost, but they will be another invaluable source of nutrients in our never-ending effort to tend the soil that contributes to our pantry. My final tending project is related to gardening, but involved me wandering out for, to forage, or rather, forage when I registered that a useful common weed was at its height. The plant in question is ribwort plantain, also known as narrowleaf plantain or plantago lanceolata, 
It is a rather unflashy plant that typically grows in the temple areas of Eurasia, but also, I understand, was introduced in America and Australia. You can recognise this perennial plant by the rosette of leaves that grows close to the ground. On the narrow leaf plantain, the leaves are about 2 cm or 3 quarters of an inch wide and about 10 to 15 cm or 4 to 6 inches long, with about 5 veins running parallel to the length of the leaf. The flower stalk is anything from 15 to 50 centimetres high or 6 inches to about a foot and a half. And on top you'll find a narrow cone like centre with a ring of wispy cream coloured flowers about halfway up that cone that remind me of a monk's tonsure. Although you can eat the flowers, which apparently have a mushroom-like flavour and texture, I was more interested in the plant's medicinal uses. The leaves have antihistamine and styptic properties, amongst other things, which means that they are particularly useful for dealing with insect bites, nettle stings, and the many and varied scratches and scrapes my hands pick up whilst gardening and foraging. Out in the field, you can rub a leaf between your hands, or lightly chew on it to release its sap, and then hold the leaf to the bite or graze, or even wrap it round a cut finger, much as you would a modern-day plaster. Although ribwort plantain has a relatively long flowering period, from April to August in the UK, I wanted to capture its properties for the year to come, so I made some ribwort salve sticks using a very simple recipe. I first steeped the leaves in oil, leaving them on the windowsill for about a month. I then poured off the leaves and heated the infused oil with beeswax and poured the molten liquid into a form to let it set. The recipe I used recommended almond oil, but I swapped that out for apricot kernel oil as I'm allergic to nuts. Add to that, apricot kernel oil is an oil pressed from the waste kernel rather than the whole edible fruit, as in the case of almond oil, which strikes me as a more sensible approach to using a valuable food resource. I used beeswax, but there are plant-based waxes that can be used for those who prefer not to use animal byproducts. As to the proportions, I used 200 millimetres of oil to 30 grams of wax, or about 7 ounces of oil to just over an ounce of wax. When preparing the blend, it smelt a little unpleasant. Not as in off or silage, but a little bit bitter. I therefore popped a few drops of essential lavender oil into the blend. I noticed that the bitter smell dissipated once the sticks had fully cooled, so essential oil was definitely not necessary. The resulting sticks are quite greasy, even when dried out and after a night in the fridge, so I wrap them in paper and I'm storing them in the fridge. If you have little tins or jars, you could put the salve in them, but I'll make do with keeping them wrapped in baking parchment when I'm out and about. As I said, these sticks are a natural way to calm angry bites, stings and grazes. As someone whose immune system often goes haywire, I will not be dispensing with my antihistamine tablets, but I am using these sticks as a first line of defence against minor things like mosquito bites, nettle stings, and the many scratches and scrapes I pick up when I'm pottering in the garden or foraging in my local unofficial countryside. And given that there are growing shortages of medicines in the UK, including antihistamine, I am pleased to be able to keep my precious antihistamine tablets for more serious allergic responses. Well, that's quite a long and mixed look at maintenance and tending, and hopefully an illustration that repair and aftercare can be enjoyable, informative and even fun. 
The wartime phrase make do and mend has become hackneyed and suggests deprivation and hardship. But as one of my acquaintances once rephrased it, making, doing and mending are enjoyable acts of creativity in their own right. Please do let me know what maintenance and tending looks like in your making life. Have you found mending, remaking or maintenance a source of interest and discovery? Or have you faced them with dread only to be surprised at how manageable, even enjoyable they can be after weeks of procrastination? And what repairs have you recently outsourced and thereby helped support the jobs of skilled repairers? Please do drop me a comment and let me know. And till the next time, I hope you enjoy many hours of making, whatever your medium may be.